0: Welcome to Evidence Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the face to this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So, we talked a fair amount about birds last week. Uh, yes. That is definitely one of my favorite topics (laughs) in case you couldn't uh, have gathered that by now, but those were living birds. So I want to take a second to talk about this neat discovery of a bird that lived some 62 million years ago. And so paleontologists have found the remains of a pelagonorthed bird in New Zealand And so the new species has been designated Protodonturix ruthiae and is a member of the ancient family of bony-toothed birds called Pelagornithidae. And so this species would have been a seabird around the size of a modern seagull. It is actually, it turns out, the smallest member of the family. However, other members of the Pelagornithidae Pelicanorthidae family were some of the largest birds to ever fly. Fossils found from the late Paleocene up into the Pliocene, which is roughly between 65 and 2 million years ago, it's a pretty long run, uh, contain fossils of, wings, of birds with wingspans up to 21 feet. Now, all shared an important feature bony protrusions on the edge of their beaks which resembled teeth. Now the fossil was first discovered at the Waipara Green Sand Fossil Site in 2018 by amateur paleontologist Lee Love and so again we've talked about this sometimes but there are few and we're actually going to talk about two of them tonight there are few sort of scientific endeavors these days where you still find Amateurs doing a lot of the work, um, and that's I guess three. So uh, paleontology, sometimes archaeology, though um, that can be fraught, uh, and uh, astronomy. Those are kind of the three leftover uh, sciences where astronomers, where amateurs can still do a lot of work. And so he found this um, particular fossil while he was looking for a bunch of other stuff. The age of the fossilized bones suggests Pelagonorthids evolved in the Southern Hemisphere, said Dr. Paul Schofield, a curator at Canterbury Museum and the senior author of a paper published in the journal, Papers in Paleontology. While this bird was relatively small, the impact of its discovery is hugely significant in our understanding of this family. Until we found this skeleton, all the really old Pelagonorthids had been found in the Northern Hemisphere, so everyone thought they'd evolved there. At the time, P. ruthier would have lived in what is New Zealand. The climate would have been more tropical than it is now. There would have been corals and giant turtles and other species associated with warmer temperatures. The discovery of Proto-Dompterix ruthier, was truly amazing and unexpected, said co-author Dr. Gerald Mayer, a researcher with the Prague Research Institute and Natural History Museum. Not only is the fossil one of the most complete specimens of a pseudo-toothed bird, but it also shows a number of unexpected skeletal features that contribute to a better understanding of the evolution of these enigmatic birds. And so while members of the family, uh, which evolved later, were built for long distance soaring with their huge wingspans, uh, reminiscent of today's um, albatrosses, P. Routhier was obviously uh, designed for shorter ranges of flight, much like modern seagulls. And so they definitely would have looked probably very similar to seagulls, except for the teeth, <laughs> um, or the pseudo teeth. And so those pseudo teeth uh, were most likely evolved for catching fish. And it turns out that the later birds actually evolved a different kind of pseudo teeth. So they ended up having needle like pseudo teeth that were more adapted to catching soft bodied prey like squid. And so these features show that the pseudo teeth evolved before the birds became specialized long duration gliders. Um, and so, yeah, very much like albatrosses, but bigger even than albatrosses, which is kind of crazy because they are very large. Um, and uh, if you don't know, for the first several years of their lives, albatrosses never land, they fly continually for the first like five or six years of their lives until they finally set down somewhere in order to mate. And so they're pretty incredible. Um, And if you've ever seen one you'll you'll understand how incredible they are and how beautiful. Uh, And of course they amongst all of our other animals and flyers and everything is under attack. Um, I don't want to not mention that uh, today was the beginning of the Climate Strike Week, and um, yeah, I am very, very worried about things, as you might know, but we're going to not talk too much about that, because I do like to keep it very much about uh, interesting science, but I did want to acknowledge it, <laughs> um, even though I don't really want to spend a lot of time dwelling Okay. So, let's move on to North America, where a new where new research suggests that elevated levels of oxygen gave rise to the diversity of North American dinosaurs. And so, a team of researchers from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and the University of Texas Austin have used a new technique to analyze minute amounts of gas trapped inside 215 million-year-old rocks from both the Colorado Plateau and the Newark Basin. And what they found was that in a mere three million years, which is of course a blink of an eye in geological terms, the levels of oxygen in the atmosphere jumped almost a third, which might have allowed for the expansion of dinosaurs into the tropics of North America, as well as other regions. We tested rocks from the Colorado Plateau and the Newark Basin that formed at the same time about 621 miles apart on the supercontinent of Pangea," said Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute's Professor Morgan Shaler and lead author of the study. Our results show that over a period of around 3 million years, the oxygen levels in the atmosphere jumped from around 15% to around 19%. For comparison, there is 21% oxygen in today's atmosphere. We don't, we really don't know what might have caused this increase, but we also see a drop in carbon dioxide levels at that time. And so according to the researchers, this would almost certainly have been a global event. Uh, for instance, they note that these two rock samples are 621 miles apart, which is not, you know, extremely far apart as far as, you know, the opposite side of the globe. But it makes sense that if you have uh, an increase in oxygen, that's going to be a global phenomenon. Now, of course, they can't say for sure that the rise in oxygen was the only or even a major component of the spread of dinosaurs. They can only note the closeness of the timing. What is remarkable Is that right at the oxygen peak we see the first dinosaurs appearing in the North American tropics, Chindosaurus. The sauropods followed soon afterwards. Again, you can't say we can't say yet if this was a global development, and the dinosaurs don't rise to ecological dominance in the tropics until after the end Triassic Triassic extinction. What we can say is that this shows that the changing environment 250 million years ago was right for their evolutionary diversification. But of course, oxygen levels may not have been the only factor. Um, and so the authors explain that in the paper. Now, Chindosaurus was an upright carnivorous dinosaur around 6.6 feet long and nearly 3.3 feet high. It was found extensively or is found extensively in North American fossil deposits and has its origins in the North American tropics. Now it was a common late Triassic dinosaur of the American Southwest. For instance, the first dinosaurs were quite small, but higher oxygen levels in the atmosphere are often associated with a trend to larger sizes, said University of Bristol's professor Mike Benton, who was not involved in the research. This new result is interesting, as the timing of oxygen rise and dinosaur appearance is good, although dinosaurs have been abun- had been abundant in South America rather earlier around two hundred and thirty two million years ago so again um, it 's one of those things where we have this kind of result where you can see that something is interesting and different but it's often hard to really be able to say with 100% certainty that X caused Y, uh, especially since there are all sorts of other factors that could have been in play. And um, the other thing to remember, too, is that this isn't North America as it is today. Uh, This is North America when it was still part of Pangea, so it would have been in a very different position on the globe much of North America would have been uh, tropical because it would have been in that area nearer to the um, equator. And so there was also a difference in sort of the bridges of land where the animals could move around. And so um, there's actually a time when after the breakup of of Pangaea, a lot of the continents were actually separated from one another. And so A lot of um, dinosaurs developed independently on these new separated uh, land masses. And then when some of them came back together, there was actually um, exchanges and some of that resulted in die-offs, for instance, um, because they had become genetically distinct enough that either there were some dinosaurs that outcompeted the ones that were native to that piece of land or they had developed their own pathogens that were then actually traded between the different kinds of dinosaurs. And so there are actually several large die-offs during the reign of the dinosaurs. And of course, they also lived for way, 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 way longer uh, than I think that any of us really ever think about. Um, I think that the the I'm forgetting exactly what it is, but I think it's that the T-Rex is uh, closer, more closely related to humans than it is to, uh, or is close is more close in time to humans than it is to uh, Triceratops. Um, I'll have to I'll have to remember. I'll have to actually look that one up. That's off the top of my head. So if I'm wrong, I will let you know next week, and I will post it on the Facebook page. But I know that there is a statistic about you know. One dinosaur that we think of is closer in age to us than they are to another really famous dinosaur. Um, And so it's just kind of crazy to think that the dinosaurs were there for so long. Um, I actually have a printout of um, the geological ages of the Earth. And it's always funny to look at. I was actually looking at it uh, earlier Uh, This week when I was looking to figure out exactly what the time frame was for those ancient birds. And so it's crazy because there are four columns. And uh, it's just on an eight and a half by 11 uh, portrait uh, printout. And there are four columns. And in three of those four columns, there is absolutely no... Uh, nothing that resembles humans. Uh, No, I don't even think primates, uh, not primates, I don't even think mammals uh, are actually really developing until maybe the top of that third column. And then when you go to that fourth column that is moving towards where we are now, when you look at it, the time that humans have been on the earth is probably about a millimeter thick. Um, And this is a whole four column, four columns of all of the geological ages of the earth and humans have been on the earth for like half the width of uh, your average fingernail for any of your, any of your fingers, about a millimeter, maybe a centimeter, maybe a centimeter, um, if I'm being uh, generous. And that would include all of the early hominids at that point, um, very much so, even maybe some of the primate uh, antecedents of those uh, animals that would eventually become hominids, that would eventually become humans. And so uh, that's another really important thing to think about is that uh, we've been on this planet for a very, very short amount of time, and we've managed to do a lot of things to it. And of course, you know, the idea that I think some people forget too is that even if we continue to manage to ruin it, um, we are only basically ruining it for ourselves. And once humans actually no longer are around to ruin it, it will survive, it will go on. And uh, there are plants and animals that will survive us. And um, not that that's a reason to say, oh, well, it's just a realization that humans need to remember that they're not as important as they think they are. And that this world that we live on has seen many, many species live and evolve and change and then die off. Um, The dinosaurs were much more successful so far than we have been in, uh, being able to survive and to proliferate, uh, throughout the world. And so it's really important for us sometimes to remember that, that we are not, um, sort of these amazing special things, uh, Someone, I was reading a joke earlier today, someone said, you know, we have no idea what dinosaurs sounded like, maybe they were able to talk, which of course, I don't think they would have been based on their anatomy, but it was just funny. Um, and then someone, uh, it was really funny, because it was a, it was a, uh, you know, kind of a joke, where someone said, uh, maybe they spoke German, and it was like, guten uh Fraulein, mastodon uh and then it was like um wie geht's uh um her, uh paradactyl. and of course somebody then noted okay first of all neither of those were dinosaurs and they also lived uh like 65 million years apart from each other um so it was a joke on many levels At least I thought it was. Um, Anyways, let's move on. (laughs) Uh, We have one more story about dinosaurs. And so new research suggests that the T-Rex would have had a sort of internal thermostat in its head uh, that would help it to regulate its body temperature. And so T-Rex skulls feature two large holes in the roof of the skull called dorsal temporal fenestra. And so researchers once believed these holes were filled with muscle to assist with jaw movements. But a new study suggests a more likely answer is for body temperature control, similar to that of modern alligators. It's really weird for a muscle group to come up from the jaw, make a 90 degree turn and go along the roof of the skull, said uh, University of Missouri's Professor Casey Holliday, lead author of the study. Yet we now have a lot of compelling evidence for blood vessels in this area based on our work with alligators and other reptiles. And so using alligators at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park in Florida, the researchers took thermal imaging of the heads of the creatures throughout the day. I should say the alligators. uh, I don't know. Creatures just sounds kind of... (laughs) Alligators are not nearly as scary as people make them out to be, uh, though they are definitely uh, to be respected. An alligator's body heat depends on its environment, said co-author Dr. Kent uh, V.A., a researcher in the Department of Biology at the University of Florida. Therefore, we noticed when it was cooler and the alligators are trying to warm up, our thermal imaging showed big hot spots in these holes in the roof of their skull indicating a rise in temperature later in the day when it's warmer the holes appeared dark like they were turned off to keep cool this is consistent with prior evidence that alligators have a cross current circulatory system or an internal thermostat so to speak and so they then took these images and compared them to fossilized remains of dinosaurs and crocodiles to compare the morphology of the Fenestra over time. We know that, similarly to the T. rex, alligators have holes in the roof of their skulls, and they are filled with blood vessels, said Ohio University's Professor Larry Whitmer, and another co-author of the study. Yet for over a hundred years, we've been putting muscles into a similar space with dinosaurs. By using some anatomy and physiology of current animals, we can show that we can overturn these early hypotheses about the anatomy of this part of the T-Rex's skull. So once again, we are learning new things about ancient beasts. And so this is one of my favorite things. I love when new technology and new perspectives are applied to old theories and they're able to be revised and updated. And I talk about this from time to time, um, but I just always like to reiterate it, that that's a feature of science, not a bug. Um, A lot of people fear science or don't understand science or don't believe in science because they say, well, scientists have been wrong before. And uh, unfortunately, that's both true and completely beside the point um, because The thing is, is that science is about discovering things. And if we stopped discovering things, then we wouldn't be doing science anymore. And we're always going to be developing new technologies. We're always going to have new people who approach things differently and are able to see different aspects of something and be able to actually expand on science and be able to actually Even create new science. I mean, new science is being created all the time. Uh, Amazing things are being done in like polymer sciences and uh, sort of the applied sciences there. Um, We are learning all sorts of new things about things that have been around. Uh, Other fan favorite topic on this show is, of course, people finding things on back shelves in museums. And uh, suddenly we have a new species or suddenly we know something about an ancient people that we didn't know about before because someone had dug up the artifact and put it in a box and said, I'll get to that someday and then passed on and didn't uh, remember about it at all. And then you know, 50, 100 years later, somebody comes by and says, hey, what's this? (laughs) And so um, I think that that's an essential part of science. It is not a bug. It is not a problem with science. Science is about continually moving forward, but also continually reassessing. And yeah, obviously, we can't know everything about everything. Um, I always think about, you know, physics in that way like I love reading about physics and I think that physics is very cool but I also you know have sort of this idea about how much of a system can a part of a system know and so because we're part of the universe how exactly how much can we know about the universe because we're an essential part of it and it's kind of that um there's that phenomenon in uh, physics with a lot of particles where there is this sort of paradox where if you measure them, they change state. And so I feel like it's a little bit uh, analogous to that. And so I think that science is both has already taught us a lot and still has a ton to teach us in the future. And hopefully we will actually manage to make it Uh, out of the current climate, uh, crisis and crisis in general, uh, so that we can have some of these amazing new technologies and new, uh, ideas and new discoveries about weird, tiny little creatures that live in odd places that you'll never go to, but you get to read a paper about them. And I love doing that. Okay. Uh, let us move on now and talk about this new story that it kind of seems like a weird story when you first hear about it because sort of the headlines were like, oh, your bones excrete a hormone, uh, but it's it's much less uh, weird than that, and so we're going to talk about it a little bit, and hopefully I'm going to explain it as best I can because there are some medical terms which I do try and explain Uh as best I can in a short sort of, uh, blurb about them. So this is news that bony vertebrates like humans have an endocrine signal that is produced by the skeleton. The hormone osteocalcin is essential for acute stress response, which is more commonly known as the fight or flight response. Now, this is a separate response from the hormones that are released by the adrenal glands, such as cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine. Now, this stress response is essential for the survival of animals in potentially life-threatening situations. It is triggered by the sympathetic nervous system, and we've known for some time that the adrenal glands, which sit above the kidneys, release a suite of hormones which begin a cascade effect causing the body to increase temperature, heart rate, respiration rate, blood pressure, and energy expenditure in order to pave the way for muscle for muscular actions like running away or fighting. However, some of these hormones, like cortisol, should take hours to affect the body's physiology. Although this certainly does not rule out that glucocorticoids, glucocorticoids, corticoid hormones may be implicated in some capacity in the acute stress response. It suggests the possibility that other hormones, possibly peptide ones could be involved, said Dr. Gerard Carcenti, from Columbia University's Valegos College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Carcenti and colleagues believed that the answer lied in the bones. And so uh, the hypothesis was actually, and this makes a lot of sense when you think about it, they believed that the bones actually evolved as a defensive strategy against danger. Bones protect internal organs. They allow animals to move and thus avoid danger and are also involved in things like hearing, which is, of course, one of the main senses involved in threat avoidance. The researchers knew that the bone-derived hormone osteocalcin increases muscle function during exercise and enhances memory, both of which are essential tools when trying to avoid predators and maintain health. And so in several experiments involving rats, the researchers noted that under stress, the level of bioactive osteocalcin, but not other bone-derived hormones, increased dramatically. And similar results were found in humans exposed to stressors, uh, such as public speaking and cross examination. Because of course, that's pretty much where our fight or flight response happens these days, uh, is in these sort of awkward places where uh, there isn't a tiger in the bush. (laughs) It's just other people. Um, And so yeah, it That is one of the other things too, is that if we could control that better, I think a lot of people's lives could be better. And so they found that the hormone was dependent on the amygdala, but did not require the adrenal glands. Osteocalcin could explain past observations of an intact fight or flight response in humans and other animals lacking glucocorticoids and additional molecules produced by the adrenal glands. Dr. Carsenti said. Now, the researchers found that through additional experimentation, they could trace the actions involved. And so acute stressor and acute stressors triggered bone forming cells called osteoblasts to uptake the neurotransmitter glutamate, which is released by nearby neurons in the bone through the GLAST-1 transporter. Now, the GLAST-1 or glutamate aspartate transporter 1 which is also known as the EAAT1 or the excitatory amino acid transporter 1 is expressed in the plasma membranes of a cell and it actually allows it allows the cell to remove glutamate from the extracellular space into the cell and so basically the neurons are releasing glutamate and then this uh This transport mechanism actually is able to pull that glutamate from around the cells in the intracellular uh, space into the cell to be able to be used. And so once inside those osteoblasts, osteoblasts, glutamate inhibits an enzyme that inactivates osteocalcin. So basically it pulls in the glutamate and then the glutamate is able to bind with enzymes that would otherwise inactivate osteocalcin. And then the hormone is re- is released because it's no longer being uh, inactivated. And so once the hormone is released, it then activates the G protein coupled receptor family C group six member A or GPRC6A receptor uh, to signal a decrease in firing of upper airway and liver Parasympathetic neurons, which are involved in rest and di- in rest and digest activities, and so basically it just releases uh, the hormone turns on a uh, protein that is able to then couple with receptors that actually decrease the firing of those uh, parasympathetic neurons and so basically just quiets those down, which then leaves the sympathetic nervous system unopposed, and this triggers the fight-or-flight physiological responses. The present characterization of osteocalcin as a stress hormone provides a conceptual framework that can capture most osteocalcin-regulated physiological processes, Dr. Kersenti said. Indeed, the ability of osteocalcin to facilitate the acute stress response, favor memory, and enhance muscle function during exercise suggests that osteocalcin confers a survival advantage to bony vertebrates that live in a hostile environment such as the wild. All right. We are going to take a break and do some PSAs and show promos, and then we are going to uh, move away from biology and we are going to come back to a story that we've talked about several times uh, on this show. There is yet another uh, new hypothesis about a particular star we've talked about. So hang on for just a few minutes. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist, I save lives. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to down-tempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2am Sunday morning. Check us out. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Next to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJ-LP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Spiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Worried about climate change? Want to do something about it? Join Congressman James McGovern, State Senator Joe Comerford, Northampton Mayor David Narkowitz, and Community Actions Claire Higgins as they answer questions on the Green New Deal. Monday, April 22nd at 6 p.m. at Northampton High School following the earth dance on the church lawn from 2 to 5. Join your friends to demand a future with a livable climate and justice for all. For info, go to www.climateactionnow.com. Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, W-X-O-J-L-P, Northampton. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart, and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine, representing W-X-O-J-L-P, Northampton, Valley Free Radio, found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation, that is all. And we are back. And so uh, some of you may have guessed it, but we are going to be talking about yet another new theory, which has been proposed for the weird long-term dimming of the KIC 8462852 star, which is more popularly known as Tabby's star, or Boyajian's star, after the discoverer, Tabitha Boyajian. And so the researchers now are proposing that it is a melting exomoon, or maybe uh, a couple of exomoons, that are the cause of the irregular dimming in the star's signal. The exomoon is like a comet of ice that is evaporating and spewing off these rocks into space, said Dr. Brian Metzger, an astrophysicist in the Department of Physics and the Astrophysics Laboratory at Columbia University. Eventually, the exomoon will completely evaporate, but it will take millions of years for the moon to be melted and consumed by the star. We're so lucky to see this evaporation event happen. And so basically what happens is that an exoplanet might have been destroyed by the strong interactions with the gravitational pull of its parent star. As the planet was destroyed, the sun actually can rip the exomoon away from the planet. Now, this usually leads to the moon either colliding with the star or being ejected from the entire uh, star system. However, in rare cases, the moon can be pulled into a primary orbit around the sun. This new closer orbit to the star exposes the icy, dusty exomoon to increased radiation from the star, ripping apart its outer layers and creating dust clouds that are eventually blown out of the planetary system. Now, those clouds can come between the star and the Earth, causing the intermittent dips in brightness observed in Tappy's star. KIC 8462852 abducted an exomoon from a now long-gone nearby planet and pulled it into orbit around itself, where it has been getting torn apart by stronger stellar radiation than existed in its former orbits, the scientists wrote. Now, while this component explains the short-term unique dimming of the star, it does not explain the long-term overall fading. The researchers suggest that this is caused by chunks of the exomoon's dusty outer layers of ice, gas, and carbonaceous rock which have survived the initial radiation blowout the initial radiation blowout pressure which ejected the smaller fine-grained clouds and that the volatile large-grained material has inherited the orbit of the exomoon where it creates a consistent disk of material which blocks the star's light. And so as time goes on, the opaqueness of the disk will change as smaller material is passed out of the system and larger particles are sucked into the star's gravity well, where they will eventually melt. Ultimately, after millions of years, the exomoon orbiting KIC 8462852 will completely evaporate, the researcher said. And speaking of interstellar objects that have been mentioned on this program before... Uh, there is a new interstellar object which has been identified as visiting our solar system. And of course, the first was the mysterious Oumuamua, uh, which was that flattened object that some people thought might be an artificial construct. Uh, You know, there was all sorts of, is it an alien ship? Chances are, almost certainly no. Um, And so the new object differs from Oumuamua, by featuring the classic signs of being a comet uh, with a coma and a tail. And so Comet C 2019 Q4 Borisov, uh, named for its discoverer, the amateur astronomer Gennady Borisov, uh, who first observed it on August 30th, also has a different orbit. It has the kind of orbit that's more characteristic of what we expect to see from an interstellar object. Matthew Holman, director of the Minor Planet Center told Gizmodo last week, Oumuamua made a really deep plunge into the solar system and came close to the sun. That's not the typical behavior that we might expect. And so comet Borisov fits much better with the expected orbit and composition of an interstellar object. And so the further you get from stars, the disk is cooler. And so you end up with ice covered objects like comets rather than rocky asteroids like Oumuamua. And so right now, the object is hard to observe because it is close to the sun from our perspective. However, it's been spotted on its way towards the sun rather than on the way out as Oumuamua was. And so astronomers will have more time to study it as it continues to move through the system. And they're hoping to add more objects to this short list soon. A sample size of two is really small, but it's better than a sample size of one, Volk said. We'll keep learning about them as we catch more of them zooming through. Okay. And so now we are going to talk about math. I know terribly exciting, but it is actually kind of really interesting. Uh, And so I don't talk about math all that much because sometimes it's a little bit uh, overwhelming for people, but I think these two are pretty interesting and uh, are explainable enough to at least get the broad strokes. And so as you probably know, uh, basically math underpins pretty much everything in the universe. But it also still holds a lot of mysteries that mathematicians have spent decades and centuries trying to understand. Uh, there are certain unsolved proofs that people have been banging their heads against for hundreds of years. Uh, and so every time somebody solves something, it's kind of a big deal. And so, this first thing we're going to talk about is uh, concerning irrational numbers. And so uh, if you remember back to school, irrational numbers are numbers that cannot be reduced to a simple fraction and thus have infinite decimals with no indefinitely repeating digits. And so uh, things like the value of pi or uh, the square root of two. And so these numbers have been driving mathematicians mad since the days of the ancient Greeks. There is a legend that the Pythagorean mathematician Hypassus, was actually drowned for suggesting irrational numbers even existed. Though another version states that he drowned for selling this, was drowned for selling this information to people outside of the Pythagorean society, which sounds more plausible because they were very, 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 very secretive. Um, The Pythagoreans are a whole crazy thing um, that I might talk about someday, but We'll move on for now. Um, they were definitely wild, <laughs> but now a nearly eighty-year-old question has almost certainly been solved. Most people think of irrational numbers by rounding them to fractions or decimals, so pi can be denoted as three point one four or one hundred and fifty-seven fiftieths. And of course, this makes March fourteenth Pi Day. However, twenty-two sevenths is actually a more accurate and easier to use approximation. Thus the question becomes, is there a limit to how simple and accurate these approximations can get? And can we choose a fraction in any form that we want? And so in 1941, physicist Richard Duffin and mathematician Albert Schaeffer proposed a simple rule. They suggested that first you'd need to decide on how close the approximation should be for the fractions of a particular fully simplified denominator. And so uh, the bottom number in a fraction is the denominator, and uh, you need to reduce the fraction to its simplest form. So instead of 2 over 4, you would use 1 over 2. Now you can assign values such that anything that is n over 2 can suffice for a number whose true value falls within 1 tenth of that fraction. Fractions that are n over 10 could be limited in error to one hundredth because they are closer on the number line and thus allow greater precision. So then, if a random irrational number x has small enough errors in aggregate, then the number of good approximations is limited. However, if the errors are big enough, there are an infinite amount of denominations that will create a good approximation. If the error shrinks as the denominator gets bigger, you can choose what approximation you'd like to achieve your desi- by your desired level of precision. But this leads to a problem. In that scenario, you can either approximate almost every number arbitrarily, or almost none and none of them. There's a striking dichotomy, remarks co-author Demetrius Kokou. Kocou- Koulopolous, a mathematician at the University of Montreal, and you can choose what errors you are interested in so that if the errors can equal zero, you can limit the approximation to denominators that are only only in the range of the power of 10. Duffin and Schaefer were ultimately unable to prove their conjecture that small errors make it harder to approximate numbers. The Duffin-Schaefer conjecture has this magical simplicity in an area of maths that's normally exceptionally difficult and complicated, co-author James Maynard said, a professor at the University of Oxford. Maynard actually usually studies prime numbers rather than irrational numbers. And of course, primes are only divisible by themselves and one. A University of York professor suggested Maynard try to tackle the Duffin-Shafer conjecture after a talk that he had given at the, university, at the university several years ago. I think he had an intuition that it might be beneficial to get someone slightly outside of that immediate field, said Maynard. Now, the solution, of course, took years, uh, however, and with the addition of Kukulopoulos as a co- collaborator. Now, they knew from previous work done on the conjecture that the solution lay in the prime factors of the denominators. Maynard suggested thinking in terms of color shading on a number line. For any part of a particular denominator, only part of the number line will be colored in. If they could show that for each denominator, sufficiently different areas were colored, then they could ensure almost every number was colored. If they could also prove that these sections were overlapping, they could extrapolate this That this happens many times. One way to prove this was to show that regions colored by different denominators were independent. But this isn't actually true, especially if if denominators share many prime factors. And so the researchers decided to take a new approach to the problem and graph it. They plotted dots that represented possible denominators that the researchers wanted to use for the approximating fraction, and connected them with lines. Uh, They're actually called edges in maths. Uh, And so these dots, those dots in cases where the allowed denominators had unwanted dependencies. So basically, they plotted out the um, numbers using dots, and then the connected ones that were of that uh, that had too many um, primes in common in the denominator. One of the biggest insights you need is to forget all the unimportant parts of the problem and to just hone in on the one or two factors that make it very special, said Maynard. Using graphs, he says, not only lets you prove the result, but it's really telling you something structural about what's going on in the problem. And so they found that when they looked at the graphs with many edges, they corresponded in a particular particular highly structured mathematical situation that could be analyzed separately. It was quite the surprise to many other mathematicians in the field. The general feeling was this was not close to being solved, says um, Einstleitner, and The technique of using graphs is something that maybe in the future will be regarded as just as important as maybe more important than the actual Duffin-Shafer conjecture, said Jeffrey Vailer, a retired professor at the University of Texas, Austin, who proved a special case of the conjecture in 1978. Now, of course, it will take a while for the full proof to be read and understood. It's currently 44 pages of dense technical mathematics that will take time for even the uh, leading members of the field to decipher. But the feeling is hopeful that it is correct. Says Vailer, it's a beautiful paper. I think it's correct. Now, our next maths story involves cubes. And so, a finding recently of three cubed numbers that sum to 42 was exciting. Uh, however, the discovery of three enormous cubes that sum to just three is even more of a coup for mathematicians. Having now found three cube solutions for all integers less than 100, mathematicians had turned to the problem of finding a non-trivial sum of three cubes, of of three cube solution for the number three. While it may not be as exciting to Douglas Adams fans for mathematicians, finding a new solution for three is much more significant. Andrew Sutherland, MIT mathematician noted. Now for decades, researchers have been trying to find the A- b, and c that would satisfy the a cubed plus b cubed plus c cubed equals n, where n is a given integer. The number 3 has been a challenge. 1 and 2 have infinite solutions, but 3 until now had only two trivial solutions. 1 cubed plus 1 cubed plus 1 cubed, and 4 cubed plus 4 cubed plus negative 5 cubed. And so in 1953, British mathematician Lewis Mordell said it would be difficult to find, and actually some mathematicians had basically just given up. And so like the researchers who cracked 42, Sutherland and Andrew Booker of the University of Bristol found the answer using the charity engine. And so this is actually really neat. It's a program that lets scientists perform calculations with unused processing power from home computers. Now, even with all of that computing power, the the solution still took around 4 million computing hours. They did have a bit of a hint, however. A previous proof suggested that any answer requires A, B, and C to be a certain distance away from a multiple of 9. And while this is a good finding for cryptographic purposes, it's also just a joy for the researchers uh, who were really excited to solve these decade-old problems. For computational number theorists like me, having access to this kind of computational power is like giving an astronomer a new telescope that is 100 times more powerful than any that existed before, Sutherland said. There is no telling what you'll see when you point it at what you thought was a dark patch of sky. All right, so that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed. And uh, if you just are delighted by the sound of my voice for some reason, odd reason. Uh, I will be pinch hitting on civil politics tonight, which is coming up next. Um, So do stay tuned for that. And that will be up in just a few minutes. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.